Hello, everybody, and welcome to the program. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and I'm the Communications Director for the Canadian Centre for Bioethical Reform. And today, uh, I'm quite excited because we have a really good show for you. We have an interview with a, a quite famous, renowned author and journalist and lecturer named Adam Hosschild. Now, for those of you who aren't aware of him and his work, his most well-known uh, books include uh, King Leopold's Ghost, which deals with the fallout uh, of Belgian colonialism in the Congo, uh, to end all wars, which sort of deals with the insanity of the First World War and those who tried to protest against that, uh, The Mirror at Midnight, The Unquiet Ghost, and of course a book that we here at the Canadian Centre for Bioethical Reform study quite closely, uh, Bury the Chains. Bury the Chains being a book that goes through in great detail and just provides a really vivid narrative of the different abolitionist movements that worked to get rid of slavery with a specific focus on the movement of, of the activist Thomas Clarkson and, and the abolitionist William Wilberforce and their organization, the Society for Affecting the Abolition of the Slave Trade. Now, Mr. Hosschild has quite an impressive resume uh, just standing outside of, uh, of his award-winning books. He graduated from Harvard in 1963 with a BA in history and literature, and as a college student, he actually spent a summer working on an anti-apartheid newspaper in South Africa, and then subsequently actually as a civil rights worker in Mississippi in 1964. Both of these experiences really shaped the way he worked, and he details them extensively in a memoir called Finding the Trapdoor. Uh, beyond his personal experiences, Adam Hosschild's uh, history books are sort of shot through with an air of authenticity because he did a lot of traveling in order to write what he wrote, thereby sort of experiencing a lot of historical occurrences while researching history, almost a sort of a historical foreign correspondent, if you will. And he's been published in some of the most prestigious publications out there. He's written for The New Yorker, uh, Harper's Magazine, The Atlantic, Granta, The Times Literary Supplement, The New York Review of Books, The New York Times Magazine and the nation, among many, many others. So without further ado, I'd like to share with you the interview that I conducted with Mr. Adam Hosschild. Uh, so the first question I'd like to ask you uh, is that many people, when they, they read your book, Bury the Chains, many people express surprise that although William Wilberforce got most of the credit, if you will, for ending the slave trade, that you really focused on how it was the agitator, the activist Thomas Clarkson, who really did the legwork. Uh, would you mind telling us a little bit about that? Sure. I think that for many movements that succeed, uh, you need uh, an outside person who is the agitator, who whips up public opinion, and you need an inside person who's the person who finally gets the legislation through Parliament or Congress or whatever the legislative body involved in is. And actually, really, you need a number of people in each of those roles. And I think Clarkson and Wilberforce were really one of the great combinations in history because Wilberforce was the leader of the parliamentary uh, a group that opposed the slave trade and slavery itself. And he was effective in that role, I think, because he was somebody who was profoundly conservative on every other issue of the day. He believed women's place was in the home. He was opposed to extending the franchise beyond the 5% or so of English men who could vote at that time. Um, he thought the greatest menace to Great Britain was labor unions, deeply conservative on every issue except slavery. 
And I think that very conservatism made him extremely effective with his fellow legislators because he was not a flaming radical in any sense. Thomas Clarkson, on the other hand, was a man who was very influenced by the French Revolution. When the, the Bastille fell, he went to Paris and he brought home a stone from the Bastille and kept it in his house the rest of his life. Mm -hmm. um, he was a radical on all the issues of the day, whether it was education reform or extending the franchise uh, or you know, the tactics to be used in, in opposing slavery or anything else. And this is the kind of person, you know, who uh, was made to be uh, a traveling organizer, which he was for the movement, and I think he was, he was perhaps the most successful community organizer in history. He estimated that over a, a seven or eight year period, he traveled 35,000 miles uh, by horseback all over England, Scotland, and Wales. Uh, agitating against the slave trade, finding witnesses who could testify in Parliament, distributing literature, uh, this kind of thing. An extraordinary man. And he kept going back on the road at other periods uh, throughout his life when the movement went through new phases and moved from getting the slave trade abolished to trying to abolish slavery itself. And in those later journeys, he often found himself dealing with the children and grandchildren of people whom he'd met on the first, on the first journey. An extraordinary man. Mm -hmm. And I think he's never gotten the attention that he deserves uh, that, that Wilberforce has gotten. Uh, why do you think that is? Because that, that came came across very clearly. I've read some other things on, on Wilberforce and Clarkson, mainly books like the Eric Metaxas book on William Wilberforce, where obviously Thomas Clarkson gets a mention and where I sort of knew what his role was. But why do you think he doesn't get nearly as much attention as he deserves, whereas Wilberforce has countless and countless uh, books written on him and, and, of course, a movie that was also made about him? Right. Well, I think that the, the main reason is that the evangelical movement today loves William Wilberforce because he was an evangelical mm -hmm. and because on every issue other than slavery, he was very, very conservative. Uh, he was a deeply religious man in a way that Thomas Clarkson, curiously, even though he was trained to be a preacher, was not. Uh, and so Wilberforce has long been a favorite of evangelicals in the United States. And the fact that he was the center of that movie that was made, uh, Amazing Grace, is totally due to the fact that an enormously wealthy evangelical, Philip Anschutz, uh, funded the movie and was looking for years before he could find a, a reputable director who was willing to direct such a movie. It's actually a very well-made well movie. Uh, with some fine actors in it, but it really distorts the history because it gives to Wilberforce a number of the, the lines and things that Thomas Clarkson actually did. And it even portrays Clarkson as a bit of a dissolute drunkard, which he certainly was not. Mm -hmm. So I have a lot of objections to the movie, but of course, movies are movies and, and uh, you know, no one can copyright history. And uh, people often distort history when they, when they tell it. Uh, in films. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, in your book, you kind of go uh, very extensively through all the different things that Thomas Clarkson went out and gathered in order to change public opinion. And you, you cite very specifically a, a diagram of the SS Brooks put out in 1788. And you say, and I quote, that graphic images have power because they allow us to see what previously would have been unimaginable. You also cite an example where uh, the activist chose not to show uh, this image to a certain nobleman for fear that, that he might even have a stroke. Can you explain uh, for our listeners just, just how impactful these graphic images can be on, on shifting public opinion and, and, and how that assisted the abolitionists in their fight? Well, you have to kind of mentally imagine yourself back to the days before photography. Uh, this was this was uh, half a century or more before photography had been invented. And then think about what incredible power it has when you see something like a slave ship represented graphically. This is an image that everybody has seen because it's on the cover of lots of books about slavery, it's on record covers, uh, it's in every documentary that's ever been made of the sub on the subject. It's that top-down diagram of a slave ship that shows you how the slaves' bodies were packed like sardines right next to each other. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so it's a, it's a familiar image to us now. Uh, it was drawn from the plans of a specific ship, the Brooks of Liverpool. And actually the diagram is rather conservative because it shows fewer uh, slaves' bodies uh, than we know from shipping records that that ship carried in certain of its voyages. Uh, and it had enormous impact. Uh, people were bowled over by it. You can find accounts in memoirs and so on where people talk about how they were stunned when they, when they saw it for the first time because it was a graphic representation of something which up to that point in time, up until Thomas Clarkson went on the road and started agitating, you know, most people in England didn't want to talk about, didn't want to hear about, didn't want to think about. And yet here was this tremendously forceful diagram. I think probably the most, it was the first widely reproduced political poster and in some ways the, the most influential ever. When the abolitionists saw what a tremendous uh, effect it had, they ran off 8,000 copies and they put them up in pubs all over England. Mm -hmm. And very much, you describe in your book how it was quite essential for these people to take to take something that was sort of a philosophical concept, something they couldn't see, and and bring it very much into the reality. And and there are, as you mentioned in your book, many social movements that have taken their cues uh, from the abolitionists. That's right. I, I was just stunned as I learned about this movement to see how many of the things that we take for granted today in any kind of political organizing. Um, was developed by these people. For example, the idea of an organization agitating for something that has its headquarters in a nation's capital, Ottawa or Washington or wherever, mm -hmm. and branch offices around the country. Taken for granted today, uh, a very unusual concept that hadn't really been tried before at that time. Mm -hmm. um, the idea of using a political poster the idea of having a logo for your organization, um, you know, like the Amnesty International logo, for example, that you see people have on their cars sometimes. Um, you know, the, the Abolition Committee in England in 1787 developed uh, the first logo that I know of that was ever designed for a political organization. 
um, the equivalent of, of all kinds of things we do today. For example, if you're agitating for something today, well, you organize writers you know to write op-ed columns for newspapers on the subject. Uh, then they organize people to write poems and ballads, and these would be sold for a, a halfpenny on, on street corners. Uh, there are all kinds of things that they did that, that uh, are tools that organizers have used since then. Theirs was, for example, the first really widespread, well-organized consumer boycott, where some 300,000 people in Britain stopped eating sugar because it was grown by slaves. Um, and this is a technique that's often been used since then. So for me, it was very exciting to sort of see the birth of so many things like this that we take for granted today. And actually an interesting experience I've had with this book is this. The last four or five times that some group has asked me to come and speak about this particular story, in all but one of those times, it's been an organization that was not interested in slavery, but was interested in global warming. Because they see an analogy to these abolitionists of 225 years ago, who put an issue on the table that wasn't on the table in the world of the late 18th century. A world where, incidentally, you know, roughly two-thirds of the people in it, more than two-thirds of the people in it, were slaves, serfs, indentured servants, indentured laborers of one kind or another. Mm -hmm. People weren't talking about it. The abolitionists put that issue on the table, and global warming activists today are trying to do the same thing and to see what lessons they can learn from them. Uh, very interesting. Also, I noticed another part in your book that sort of distinguished this movement from previous movements. And, and you note that even while the majority of the society for affecting the abolition of the slave trade uh, were, were very strict Quakers, and while William Wilberforce himself was, as you mentioned, an evangelical, and Thomas Clarkson had trained to be a clergyman, that when they first presented the abstract abstract of the evidence to the House of Commons, they didn't actually cite the Bible and they didn't cite explicit explicitly religious reasons. Instead, they focused on the human rights violation and, and the sheer barbarism that was taking place. And you noted that that was somewhat unique for the day and the age. It really was, because up until then, this movement sort of started off with a bang in 1787. And up until that point, all, almost all argument or dialogue about slavery and the slave trade in Britain have been carried on in terms of biblical argument. You know, the Bible says this here, no, the Bible says that there. Because you can look in the Bible and find justification for almost anything. Um, and, you know, those arguments had reached very few people. But the abolitionists discovered in the space of a few years that what really moved people and outraged people was not uh, biblical argument, it was eyewitness description. And one of the ways they discovered it was this peculiar little book that goes by the title of The Abstract of the Evidence, as much longer title of evidence presented before Parliament on such and such a date and so forth. Mm -hmm. And how that came about was, was this. Um, there had been uh, many hearings before the House of Commons, the House of Lords, a committee of the House of Lords, a committee of the House of Commons, and so forth. Uh, probably 1,500, 2,000 pages of, of hearing transcripts. 
And they wanted to prepare something for members of parliament who they knew couldn't wade through all of this material. And remember, this was an age before copying machines and the like. Mm -hmm. um, they wanted to prepare something. So they took a great mass of this material and they boiled it down to about a 150-page little book where it was organized, you know, a paragraph or two from each witness, one chapter on conditions on slave plantations, one on conditions on slave ships, one on punishments that slaves were subject to, and so forth. Just eyewitness testimony from people who'd seen it, people who had been there. And they printed the uh, copies for all members of parliament, and then they had some left over. So they thought, well, let's see if we can, you know, sell some of these to the general public as well. And this turned out to be the best-selling nonfiction piece of anti-slavery literature of all time. Mm -hmm. It was still in print and still in use uh, more than 60 years later at the beginning of the American Civil War. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think this was one of the things that made people think, well, what is really going to convince people is eyewitness testimony. And this is what human rights organizations do today. You know, I have traveled in Africa with a researcher from Human Rights Watch and watched her gather information from interviewing people that is then written up in reports and put before audiences, put before governments to try to get people to, to, to do something about an injustice. Mm -hmm. The same principle that the anti-slavery folks discovered. And what I found really fascinating in Bury the Chains, and something that else that makes this this movement not necessarily unique, but the first, the cutting edge movement, was that you said for the first time we have organizations, we have people, we have a movement that are standing up for the rights of someone that is not only not themselves, but that those rights will actually conflict with their way of life. That people, including mine workers and, and people who would suffer if the slave trade was abolished, that they were they were standing up in what seemed to be counter to their interests, but they were still defending rights that, that did not even belong to them. That's true, and that, that's an extraordinarily uh, moving thing to me, because I think, you know, if we human beings can't stand up on occasion for other people's rights, you know, there's no hope for us. Um, and this was occasion where, where, where people did. There had certainly been political movements uh, before this time in, in England, uh, you know, of people agitating for the rights of, of a religious minority or for, you know, better privileges for people in a particular trade or occupation. But this was the first time when you had a lot of people getting angry and staying angry for many years on behalf of the rights of people of another color in a different part of the world. That had never happened before. And it was an extraordinary moment. It's fascinating to see the slave owners lobby in London taken totally by surprise by this upsurge of their agitation. They didn't know what to make about it. Their lobbyist in London is writing back home to these West Indian planters saying, you know, my desk is piled high with this anti-slavery literature. I don't know what's gotten into people. I don't know where this is coming from. Nothing like this has happened before. Um, it's, it was a remarkable moment indeed.
Mm-hmm. There's many uh, comparisons that are often made between the British abolitionists and the American abolitionists. And of course, we know that the, the British abolitionists managed to legislatively do away with, with uh, the slave trade and slavery, whereas the United States ended up having to fight a civil war in which 600,000 lives were lost. What do you think is, is the difference between these, these two abolitionist movements that caused one to be so successful legislatively and the other one uh, to, to, to fail so miserably in, in getting this, this job done without the loss of life? Well, I think the difference is that in Britain, the movement was basically on behalf of people in the West Indies. Uh, the West Indies was where Britain's slavery was. After the 1770s, there was no slavery in Britain. A court decision made that clear. And there were virtually no black people in Britain, you know, a few thousand, maybe 10,000 by, by 1790, but no more than that. Um, and so they were agitating on behalf of ending slavery in the West Indies. And I think most people in Britain, with the exception of, you know, sailors on slave ships and people who owned slave ships and people who owned West Indian plantations and so on, felt, well, this is not going to affect my life in a big way. And so it, it made it safe, in a way, to be on the side of justice. In the United States, um, we had, of course, abolished slavery in, in all the northern states. But in the South, even though only a minority of white people or white families owned slaves, I think the slave owners were very, very effective in convincing the rest of the white population that if the slaves became free, their livelihoods would be threatened. Mm -hmm. I don't think this was true, in fact, but people were convinced of this. and so southern whites were afraid that, uh, you know, freed slaves would take their jobs away, would work for less money at the same jobs that they were working at, and all kinds of things like that. So thanks, I think, to the, the influence of the southern white slave owners, the remaining white population of the South um, definitely thought of itself as, as pro-slavery. And uh, that was why I think it took the Civil War to end slavery. If the Civil War hadn't been fought, would slavery have come to an end eventually? Probably, but it might have been quite a long time after that. And of course, there are some places in the Americas, like like uh, Cuba and Brazil, where it didn't come to an end until 20 years or more after the American Civil War. Mm-hmm. All right, just uh, one final question. What, in your view, made the abolitionists, uh, Wilberforce Clarkson, the Society for Affecting the Abolition of the Slave Trade, succeed where, where so many movements had failed? Because as you point out, it's, it's almost a bit bizarre how slavery went from a borderline non-issue to on, ev- on everyone's lips in every newspaper. Everyone was talking about it, almost within the span of 12 months or, or just a bit more. Uh, what, in your opinion, caused that? Well, I think it was a combination of things. One was that this was a propitious moment historically. It was 1787 when the movement really got going. It was midway between the American Revolution and the French Revolution. There were a lot of ideas about human freedom in the air. And this was a set of brilliant organizers who also did something that had never been done before, really, in Britain at that point, which was people from different religious groups, 
Church of England and the Quakers to start with, and then other descending sects as well, coming together to work together for a secular aim, ending slavery. This had not happened before, and I think the combination of that, that kind of coalition politics, brilliant organizing, and a historical moment where there were a lot of ideas about freedom in the air, this is what made it possible. Mm -hmm. Well, Mr. Hostel, thank you so much for taking my call. It's so much appreciated. It was a pleasure. Now we see uh, many really insightful things that, that Adam Hostel had to has had to say here. And if if any of you listening haven't read his book uh, called "Bury the Chains," I really would encourage you to do so because of the many books about the abolitionists and specifically about William Wilberforce out there. I think this book, uh, by and large, does the very best job of of encompassing the entire movement and describing all of the different things that were necessary for success, from the use of graphic images to wake the culture up to to being able to uh, accept. Persecution and accept hardship, as as Thomas Clarkson once said. I seldom got home till two and into bed till three. My clothes also were frequently wet through with the rains. The cruel accounts I was daily in the habit of hearing often broke my sleep in the night and occasioned me to wake in an agitated state. This is something that that everybody who fights for human rights and everybody, especially who has to fight for human rights in a hostile culture, has to be prepared to deal with, deal with. And people like Thomas Clarkson, especially, were very much willing to do that. They were willing to be in contact with the culture, uh, talking to people, collecting evidence, displaying that evidence, making sure that people could not forget what was going on. Because just because the victims could not be seen, did not mean that the victims were any less valuable. Uh, Adam Hochschild describes in in, in quite de uh, depth what Thomas Clarkson all went through from being almost flung off of a pier and drowned by a group of slavers to almost constant death threats. And this is why, of course, poets like William Wordsworth actually wrote about Thomas Clarkson. And this is why, all these years later, we're still talking about him, because his work was not in vain. The things that he did were successful. And even though the politicians, those who made the glorious speeches and, and got to uh, deliver the epic oratory, they obviously have procured the most prominent place in history. When we actually look back at the facts, we see that the people on the ground, the people changing public opinion, the people working day in, day out, have an enormous responsibility because they can have such an enormous influence. So that's just the message that I'd like to leave all of you with today, is just think about what you're doing in your culture to speak up for those who can't speak for themselves. Think of, of those of those women in your town who are considering having abortions, thinking about all the babies that die day in, day out, and just look around you and, and see what you can do, because history tells us that with the right tactics and the right motives that we can attain success. So I'd like to thank you all for listening, and have a great weekend.